0: Inflation cooled a bit last month thanks to falling gasoline prices, but it's still plenty hot in Florida where voters in a key swing district are grappling with the high cost of food, housing and electricity. It's Wednesday, August 10th. this is WBR's All things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown, also ahead. Russia has become increasingly aggressive. now its neighbor to the East Latvia is looking to bolster its defenses. We want to be like a small hedgehog, which is uh, with many needles. So if you touch us, you will bleed a lot as well. How Latvia is growing its military. And it's been a year since Kabul fell to the Taliban. We'll hear from the lieutenant colonel who led the Marine Corps at the city's airport at that chaotic time and hear how the final day unfolded. It's 4.01. Now this news.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump's deposition is over. He's left the building where lawyers from the New York Attorney General's office had been questioning him about his family business practices in a long running civil investigation. Trump said shortly after arriving this morning he'd planned to invoke the Fifth Amendment against self incrimination and declined to answer questions. The New York Times reports that as Trump's motorcade pulled out of the garage at 28 Liberty Street, he encountered scattered jeers and cheers. NPR's and Andrea Bernstein has more on today's deposition.
2: The former president traveled to the state attorney general's office in Lower Manhattan for a long-delayed deposition, but refused to give any substantive answers in the inquiry into long-running fraud at the Trump organization. Instead, Donald Trump said on social media, Under the advice of counsel, he declined to answer questions. The move was expected. In a previous deposition in the same case, Trump Organization executive Eric Trump also invoked the Fifth Amendment 500 times. The New York case is a civil case, which means, unlike a criminal case, investigators can make an adverse inference when witnesses refuse to answer questions under oath. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. The Department
1: of Justice says Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, was the target of an Iranian-backed assassination plot. U.S. officials say they've charged a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, identified as Shahram Safi. Millions of U.S. veterans who've been harmed by toxic exposure to burn pits and chemicals will receive expanded health care and disability benefits under legislation President Biden signed into law today.
3: This is the most significant law our nation has ever ha- passed to help millions of veterans who are exposed to toxic substances during their military services.
1: The president says the PACT Act is a sacred obligation of the men and women who've sacrificed in service to their country. Some military families and a high-profile advocate, comedian, and activist John Stewart were also present during the signing. Stocks closed higher after new data showed inflation eased in July. We have more from NPR's David Gura.
4: All three major indexes gained ground after the Labor Department released the CPI data. In July, the consumer price index was up 8.5% from a year earlier, less than Wall Street expected and lower than the year-over-year number in June. It reflects falling gasoline prices. According to AAA, the average price of a gallon of regular gas is down a dollar from its record high in June. But food prices continued to climb, and so did rent. The Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates aggressively to bring down inflation, and before its next meeting in September, Fed policymakers will see one more CPI report and another jobs report. David Gura, NPR News.
1: The Dow has closed up more than 1.5%. NASDAQ and S&P above 2%. It's NPR News.
4: This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden says a grand jury will investigate the case of a transit police officer accused of pointing a gun at a motorist. The case has raised questions about how Hayden's office has handled the case and has prompted calls for his resignation. WBR's Deborah Becker reports.
5: Hayden's office issued a statement saying the grand jury will review the case of white MBTA police officer Jacob Green. Green allegedly pointed a gun at a black motorist during an altercation in April of last year. The statement follows a Boston Globe investigation which said that Hayden's office had indicated it was not going to prosecute. In today's statement, Hayden said he would not jeopardize the integrity of his office by not pursuing charges against a police officer. Green's attorney now says he's no longer representing Green because he is a potential grand jury witness. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: There's a renewed call today for the City of Boston to rename Fennel Hall. Today, demonstrators marched to the popular tourist site from City Hall. They point out that Fennel Hall is named after an 18th century merchant who owned and trafficked enslaved people. Racial justice advocates say the city should not associate itself with someone with that history. The MBTA is still finalizing plans to use buses instead of trains during the upcoming shutdown of the Orange Line and part of the Green Line. The T says bus drivers will soon begin making test runs to familiarize themselves with the stops along their routes. The shutdowns begin later this month for track repairs, safety upgrades, and work to finalize a Green Line expansion to Medford sports the Sox and the braves go at it again tonight over at fenway park in the forecast mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight the lows will be around 63 showers early tomorrow morning making way for partly sunny skies the highs will be around 80 degrees mostly sunny and 80 on friday the weekend looks nice sunny during the day on saturday the high around 78 sunday will be mostly sunny 82 will be the high same goes for monday sunny and 82 degrees Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm
7: Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, we learned that consumer prices are still climbing at a rapid rate, but not quite as fast as they were earlier this summer. The U.S. Department of Labor reported that inflation has pulled back from a four-decade high last month. A big drop in gasoline prices helped to offset the rising cost of groceries and other goods and services. And we're going to dig a little little deeper now into what this means with NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid, who's in St. Petersburg, Florida today, and economics correspondent Scott Horsley in Washington. Hey to both of you. Hi
8: there.
7: Hey. All right, Scott. Let's start with you, because as always, you have been digging into the numbers. What's happening to the cost of living?
9: Well, it is still going up, but not as fast as it was. Uh, In June, the annual inflation rate was over 9%, which is something we had not seen in decades. In July, that rate came down just a bit to eight and a half percent, so still sizzling, but a little cooler than the month before. (laughs) The overall price index actually didn't rise at all between June and July, and that is largely because of that steep drop we've seen in gasoline prices. Uh, Prices at the pump have fallen by about a dollar a gallon after hitting a record high back in June. We also saw a pretty big drop last month in travel-related costs for things like airfare and rental cars and hotel rooms. And economist Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives thinks that's a sign that the era of what she calls revenge travel, when people were willing to pay whatever it costs yeah. to make those trips they'd put off during the pandemic, oh, yeah. is now coming to an end.
10: Now they've got that vacation under their belt, now it's like, okay, we, now we can resume kind of normal spending behavior where we pick and choose how and where to spend our money based on the best deals available.
9: And that's important because ultimately it's that kind of selective shopping that helps keep prices in check. One reason gas prices have come down is people actually started driving less.
7: Right, but let's be very clear. Inflation has not gone away, so are other prices still going up?
9: They are. Yeah, food prices are up nearly 11% over the last year. That's the biggest year increase since 1979. Hmm. Housing costs are up nearly 6%. Electricity prices are up more than 15%. Uh, And those power prices are tough during these hot summer months when a lot of people's air conditioners are running around the clock.
7: Including mine. Asma, I know that you've been talking with people this week who are really feeling these higher prices. What are they telling you?
8: Well, that's right. And I've been reporting in the Tampa Bay metro area. In part, I came down here because inflation costs have consistently outpaced the average inflation rates in the country. And, you know, Scott spoke about electric prices. I've heard a lot about electricity bills here from people. Food prices are also a huge concern. Uh, I spoke with a young woman who owns a custom bakery in Clearwater, Florida. Her name is Jennifer Jacobs, and she told me her ingredient costs have soared. She's been particularly frustrated with the cost of eggs, and she needs a lot of them to make cakes.
10: I buy a box of 15 dozen eggs. I buy a couple of those boxes each week. Used to be $15 a box in 2020. It's gone up so much that it was $62 last week. So it's risen uh, almost, what, four times the price.
8: And Elsa, I will say, you know, her individual story is unique, but the sentiment is common. Uh, I spent some time outside of a Walmart earlier today. It was easy to find people who were willing to share an earful about rising prices. And on top of that, this is a region where housing prices have been increasing faster than other parts of the country. I spoke with a couple of different young people, young working people who told me that they ultimately decided to move back in with their families, with their parents, because they've been squeezed by rising rent prices and they can no longer afford their current rent.
9: Now, to be sure else, we should should point out wages have been going up as well. On average, Mm -hmm. wages in July were up 5.2% from a year ago, Mm -hmm. but prices are climbing faster than that. So even though people's paychecks are getting bigger, they're not stretching as far as they used to.
7: Right, that may be so, but President Biden, I mean, he took a bit of a victory lap about the new data out. And here he is at the White House earlier today.
3: Well, the price of some things go up, went up last month. The price of other things went down by the same amount. The result, zero inflation last month, but people were still hurting, but zero inflation last month.
7: I mean, Asma, I'm wondering, based on what you're hearing from voters, how do you think that 0% inflation message is going over with them right now?
8: You know, Elsa, I I will say, I think this is an example of how the White House has been struggling with the political message around inflation. Um, Some of the voters that I spoke with told me that they have been frustrated because they feel like the government is telling them that things are getting better economically, but they're not feeling that in their individual lives. And so when there is that disconnect, they ultimately will say to me that they don't necessarily trust the White House message around the economy. Uh, I went to a a really busy food pantry here in St. Petersburg, and I met a woman her name is Jill Mallon. She's on disability. She has bone cancer. And she told me that she's come to rely on the food pantry because she can no longer afford buying her groceries at a grocery store. And she does admit that the economy is affecting the way that she feels about politics.
11: I'm confused. I'm a registered Democrat, and I have issues with our former president, but some things I like better under the Republican Party, but I don't like the um, I don't like the untruths that took over with that party, even though
12: I like the economy better.
8: You know, Elsa, the reason I came here to Pinellas County is that it's one of these uh, exceedingly rare so-called boomerang counties, meaning it went for President Obama, then for President Trump and then subsequently for President Biden. Uh-huh. So it's a real mixed political place and I wanted to hear how voters are interpreting the economy. Um, you know, voters like Jill, I will say, are somewhat unclear about what they think Biden should be doing differently about the economy. But I will say there is a fairly common sentiment that I'm hearing that that voters want the government to be be able to do more, to offer a, a clear picture of an economic solution for them.
7: Yeah. Well, Scott, do you have any sense of where inflation is going to go from here?
9: Well, investors are hoping that this report is a sign that the worst of inflation is now behind us. Of course, they've hoped that in the past, and it's turned out to be wrong. But they are hoping that the Federal Reserve will feel a little more room now to be gentler in tapping the brakes on inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be welcome news on Wall Street. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped more than 535 points today.
7: That is NPR's Scott Horsley in Washington and NPR's Asma Khalid in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thanks to both of you. My pleasure.
13: U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Latvia today to reassure the Baltic country that the U.S. will defend its NATO allies. Latvia, which shares a border with Russia, says its military is not big enough to fend off its increasingly aggressive neighbor. And that is why it plans to bring back compulsory military service. NPR's Rob Schmitz
14: reports. In a lush pine and birch forest outside the Latvian capital of Riga, two dozen men dressed in camouflage cheer each other on as, one by one, they sweat through an obstacle course, running with 50-pound sandbags on their shoulders. Andris Zeps cheers them on, stopwatch in hand. He's training these recruits of Latvia's National Guard, and he's tweaking his unit's regiment of military exercises based on how Russian troops are fighting in Ukraine.
15: Ukraine. Uh, We see how Russians are fighting, their tactics. We watch how they fight, and we learn from that.
14: Keeping a wary eye on Moscow is almost second nature in Latvia, a country that shares a 180-mile border with Russia and was occupied by both the Russian Empire and, more recently, the Soviet Union until it gained independence in 1991. Latvian Defense Minister Artis Pabriks says it's clear Russia still has imperial ambitions.
16: And the way how they use the force in Ukraine, the the way how they neglect uh, the population, basically uh, makes us to think that we need to strengthen our uh, defense.
14: That's why Pabriks is leading the charge to reinstate compulsory military service for all Latvians. The country had scrapped military conscription 15 years ago after joining NATO and the European Union. But Pabrik says Russia's war in Ukraine means that Latvia needs to be prepared to fend an invader off long enough for NATO forces to fully engage.
16: Which means uh, if somebody invades us, we understand that they might overwhelm us with a might. But uh, we want to be like a small hedgehog which is uh, with many needles, so if you touch us, you will bleed a lot as well.
14: Latvia, which has a population of around 2 million, has just 7,500 active duty soldiers in its professional military, backed by 1,500 NATO troops. 20,000 people are in Latvia's military reserves.
15: It's simply not enough when you have not one but two aggressive neighbors, I mean Russia and Belarus.
14: Mari Sanzans, director of the Center for Geopolitical Studies in Riga, says compulsory service will strengthen Latvia's military-ready forces to more than 50,000. But doing so has raised concerns about the loyalty of conscripts in the event of a conflict with Russia. A quarter of Latvia's population are ethnic Russians who consider Russian to be their mother tongue, and for some, an identity linked to Russia.
15: There have been, uh, well, uh, different attempts, you know, to foster the integration, but uh, well, it hasn't been enough. The, the conscription might be another way and how to, to foster the integrations.
14: Anzan says young Latvian Russian speakers are less susceptible to Russian propaganda than the older generation and have shown they aren't interested in being part of Putin's Russia. Neither is Oskar Zvanans, who just graduated from high school. The 19-year-old is finishing a set of chin-ups at a local park in Riga. Vanags is exactly the age of those who would have to serve in the military, and he says he's more than willing to do so given the threat.
17: My father once told me that it would take Russia 48 hours to completely take over Latvia.
14: But that estimate is based on Latvia's current military capabilities. Pretty soon, all men the age of Vanags will learn to become military-ready, and in the words of the country's defense minister, learn the art of being a hedgehog. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Riga.
7: It's been five years since a deadly and violent white nationalist rally rocked Charlottesville, Virginia. The city has removed the Confederate monument that drew white supremacists, and it has approved a plan to melt down the bronze statue and forge it into
1: a more inclusive piece of public art. Taking something that was harmful and then transforming it into something that is useful and of the cultural desire of the place. Hear more tomorrow
7: on All Things Considered. And you are listening now to
0: All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 71 degrees in Boston at 418. Just ahead on All Things Considered, a year after Kabul fell to the Taliban, we look back at how those hectic days unfolded at the city's airport. That's up next here on WBUR.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mefa, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at mefa.org.
0: A Cambridge in Business News, a Cambridge-based biotech, has inked a deal for a big partnership in its efforts to treat inflammatory bowel diseases like colitis and Crohn's disease. Genta Bio will team up with Bristol Myers Squib in a deal worth up to $1.9 million for the Cambridge startup. Bio works to develop cell therapies. Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. The Dow finished up more than 1.5%, 535 points at 33,309. NASDAQ rose almost 3%, 361 points at 12,855.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. August 13th, the Broadmeadow Brook Conservation Center hosts the annual Butterfly Festival. More at worcesterculture.org. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com.
20: Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
0: In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI. To help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U And from Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
21: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. At this time a year ago, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella was in Kuwait. He is a Marine, the commanding officer for a battalion landing team, a kind of on-call crisis response force for the region. And at this time a year ago, the crisis that was looking more and more imminent was the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan.
22: We had been preparing for about a month at this point in Kuwait. We'd been talking about it, analyzing it every single day, rehearsing what we thought might happen and what we were going to do in training.
21: Then, as Richard Della puts it, the bell rang. Orders came. He and his battalion got on a military transport plane, flew to Kabul and got to work.
22: What we really needed to figure out was if we were directed to start evacuating people, what gates we were going to choose, what entry points onto the base, uh, in, in really kind of setting up the logistics that would make the most sense for the flow of a large amount of people.
21: That was August 13th, 2021. Two days later, Kabul fell. Richard Della was the officer in charge of security for Kabul Airport. We're going to spend these next few minutes hearing what that was like. Richardella told me about the precise moment when it became very clear things were not going to plan.
22: I'll never forget this moment for as long as I live. And that was the night of the 15th. During the day, uh, at different gates, more and more people started coming up. Uh, we were not formally ready for evacuation operations. I was in command of a thousand Marines. And all thousand were supposed to be there to set conditions to establish security and be prepared. I only had 150 at that point. And uh, things started to become pretty tough. People were coming to the gate. Uh, they were panicked. Um, and we started to receive plenty of sniper fire at, uh, at some of these gates. People uh, were getting injured. We dealt with that uh, as we're trained to do.
21: What uh, does dealing with that mean? Does that mean firing back? Does that mean getting people to safety? What does it mean?
22: Yes, it, it means firing back and providing enough safety to uh, protect the people that were there to help. and uh, and support the allies that we were uh, providing security with. That evening, I walk into uh, the Joint Operations Center, and right away, I see people talking about how the ambassador, or the chief of mission, has has closed down the mission there.
21: At the embassy, yeah.
22: Yes, yes, ma'am. That the government has fallen, the president has left. I was unaware as I was out on the line the entire day. And at that moment, I look up at the myriad of screens, and one camera, was picking up on the southern portion of the base. What we didn't know is that all the Afghan security forces left. So there was a huge hole in security for the southern portion of the base where the civilian terminal was. And all you saw were thousands of people running through the gates and onto the base. Our job is going to be to keep the airfield open. If there were people on that airfield, we would have to close and we would not have support, nor would we have an exit. So, in that moment, I looked at a few uh, of my people and we just locked and loaded, put our kits on, and just ran out. It, of course, it was at night, it was pitch black, and we had no idea what we were going to face. And as we ran onto that airfield, there they were, about three to 5,000 panicked civilians right there on our doorstep, surrounding the one uh, to two uh, C-17s that were actually there. What they, they saw as their, their beacon of freedom.
21: So let me just pause you for a second. You're describing a situation. You have 150 people under your command. You should have more, uh, but you have to keep the airport open so they can arrive. And with those 150 people, you're trying to figure out, what do we do with these thousands of people who are frantically pouring into the airport? And we don't know if who these people are. <laughs> uh, Afghans, Americans, whoever, good guys, bad guys, any of it. We're just trying to hold hold a line.
22: That was it, ma'am. Uh, we, yeah. You know, there's no textbook on that right there. So we just figured it out as we went. Uh, And so what we did was just get shoulder to shoulder. I would say we made up about 300 people total and just start pushing the people back to the other side of the airstrip, corral them there, then start spreading our message that we will get them out. That turned into two and a half days of a constant bitter struggle back and forth. As 5,000 grew to 10,000. Panic increased. Taliban continued to shoot uh, at us um, and and, and start hurting people from the outside. For
21: those of us trying to follow what's going on, this is when we're seeing the pictures starting to stream in of people who are desperate, running after planes, holding on to planes as they're trying to take off. They're that desperate. What are the orders you're giving? You're in charge.
22: Hold the line. Keep the airfield open. Protect these people. Those are the orders I'm giving. The people saw what we were doing. They saw that we were trying to stop the guys that were firing at us, uh, that were firing through them, the crowd that is. Uh, people had nowhere else to go. And uh, just it just created riots and absolute panic and chaos.
21: I want to bring in um- one other voice and let you respond to it just to enlarge on quite how quickly the situation was changing. Um, Last week, I interviewed General Frank McKenzie, the then commander of CENTCOM, and asked him about August 15th and the day that Kabul fell. He told me on that day, he had flown to Doha, which is where the Taliban leadership was. He had warned them not to interfere with the U.S. withdrawal.
9: When I was going out to uh, Doha, the plan was to try to get the Taliban to stop at a perimeter maybe 15 or 20 kilometers outside the city, a ring around it. We, we wanted them to not come any closer until we pulled our forces out. Well, by the time I got there, they were already in downtown Kabul, so that plan was no longer operative.
21: So a sense there of how quickly things were changing. Colonel Richard Della, from where you sat, did it feel like things flipped suddenly over those days from, you know, the Taliban is the enemy, we're fighting them, to, hang on, we're going to have to coordinate with the Taliban if we're going to secure this airport and try to get whoever we can get out, out.
22: Yeah, that, that really came as a shock to me. You know, I, I, I questioned that at initially, when I received that guy. And I said, you know, we've had multiple engagements and killed a bunch of them at this point, and they're still shooting at us. And I was told, yes. Uh, but we're partnering with them now. They're kind of going to do security from outside the base and we're going to do the inner security portion of the base. Uh, You know, the people are still very scared of the Taliban and uh, it certainly didn't make our jobs very easy once we formally opened for processing operations to begin the evacuation at the various gates that we had, the the press of humanity of 5,000 plus people pushing against a single gate and they see us take one, two, three people in, and they they just want to bum rush, claw, punch, kick, uh, any way they can to try and get onto the base.
21: Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella was in charge of security at Kabul Airport when that city fell to the Taliban. Tomorrow on the program we continue our conversation with Richard Ella describing what happened in the hours and days that followed as families desperate to evacuate massed at the gates that his troops were trying to protect.
22: This is what you were dealing with, was this just absolute crisis of humanity and looking in these people's eyes and them looking at you as their only way out because they truly believed they were going to die.
7: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 71 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, the FBI search of former President Trump's Florida home has kicked off a series of conspiracy theories alleging nefarious conduct by the government. That's ahead here on WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash gbfb. Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com slash gig. And Peabody Essex Museum, Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now, tickets at PEM.org. 1996, the last Taiwan Straits crisis, China
11: badly outmatched by the U.S.
10: What China took from it, is they wanted that to never happen again. And they've spent the past 35 years building one of the most sophisticated advanced militaries in the world, so that the next time something like this happened, they would have more options.
12: So what's the Chinese military capable of now? That's On Point tonight at 7 on
11: 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
23: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Justice Department has charged a suspected Iranian operative with allegedly plotting to kill former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton Prosecutors say it appears to be attempted an attempted retaliation for the U.S. killing of a top Iranian general. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more.
0: Prosecutors say the defendant, Shahram Porsavi is a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. According to court papers, in October of 2021, Porsavi began trying to arrange John Bolton's murder. He allegedly offered a contact in the U.S. $300,000 to carry out the plot. Porsavi, who faces two counts, is believed currently to be in Iran— Bolton is an Iran hawk who served as Trump's national security advisor. In a statement, he thanked the FBI and the Justice Department for uncovering the alleged murder-for-hire scheme. Prosecutors say the plot appears to be an attempt by Iran to hit back at the U.S. for the January 2020 American strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
23: A sharp drop in gasoline prices last month helped temper inflation a bit. Consumer prices in July were 8.5% 8.5% higher than a year ago, but that was a smaller increase than the month before when inflation hit a 40-year high of 9.1%. Mark Zandia's chief economist for Moody's Analytics, he says it's a welcome sign for consumers that inflation is cooling.
19: I think they should take solace in this. Uh, the, the worst is, at, is behind us, I think. Uh,
22: you know, it's not going to be a straight line. Uh, and, of course, things, a lot of different things could go off the rails here causing inflation to go, oil prices and inflation to go back up. But the most likely scenario going forward is that inflation will continue to moderate, and obviously that's really important to uh, American households.
23: While the price of airline tickets, used cars, and hotel rooms also fell last month, the price of food, housing, and electricity continues to climb. This is NPR. This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Baker has signed into law this afternoon a bill that will legalize sports gambling in Massachusetts. He also signed the vast majority of a borrowing bill that will funnel $11 billion into transportation projects. The bill includes money to advance efforts to expand commuter rail service between Western Mass and Boston. He also signed a bill designed to boost mental health care access, and that will require insurance companies to cover an annual mental health exam for members. The Massachusetts Department of Veterans of Foreign Wars is applauding Governor Baker's signing of a bill supporting members of the military and their families. One part of the new law makes it easier for military spouses to transfer their professional licenses to Massachusetts from other states. William LeBeau of the VFW Massachusetts says that's a win for everyone since military families move a lot. The family members should not be penalized. The whole family is serving when we have someone serving in our military. By supporting the person that's serving, by being a part of a family and being supportive, they are serving themselves. The law also allows military families to immediately register and enroll their children in a Massachusetts school district as soon as the active duty parent gets their relocation orders. State health officials are evaluating whether to once again change their strategy for vaccinating people against the monkeypox virus. Yesterday, the state said it would only schedule people to receive a first dose of the two-dose do- two vaccine to stretch a limited supply. Hours later, the federal government introduced a different strategy. It calls for two shots, but a smaller dosage. A proposal to give 11% pay raises to Boston's mayor and city councillors is likely headed to a public hearing for consideration. Today, city councillors referred the matter to the Committee on Government Operations. The pay hikes would take effect after the next election for each position. It's 434.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CitySide Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek citysidesubaru.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design.
0: In sports, the Sox and the Braves will go at it again tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, mostly cloudy. Slight chance of some showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way to partly sunny skies. The high near 80, mostly sunny and 80 degrees on Friday. The weekend looks nice. Sunny during the day on Saturday, a high of 78. Sunday will be mostly sunny. 82 will be the high. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. Dataiku.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered
13: from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Social media platforms lit up with right-wing speculation, militant rhetoric, and political fundraising after former President Donald Trump announced that his Mar-a-Lago home had been searched by the FBI. NPR reporter Lisa Hagan has been watching right-wing media and message boards, and she joins us now. Hey, Lisa.
24: I wanna. So tell me, as you've been watching these channels, what sorts of things have you been noticing? It's been a lot of very hot talk, and sometimes it's quite violent-sounding. But um, what we saw this week is now a pretty well-established pattern for people who follow this. Like I talked to Caroline Orbueno, a behavioral scientist who studies disinformation at the University of Maryland. She was looking back at social media posts from around when Trump lost the 2020 election, or even before that, when Trump was facing early calls for impeachment.
6: The calls for civil war,
25: basically, you could swap out the tweets and barely notice the difference.
24: Now She's talking about anonymous posters there. But what she noticed that's different about this week is that elected officials and high profile media personalities are using the same civil war language she's used to seeing on message boards the same comparisons of the U.S. government uh, to totalitarian states from history. Okay, so there's still quite a
13: bit that we do not know about the content of the documents that the FBI was looking for. How is that information vacuum shaping the way that former President Trump supporters are
24: responding? It gets filled in with storylines and narratives that rely on the worst possible assumptions about the FBI and Justice Department. Um, For example, you know, this is meant to stop Trump from announcing a second run for president. The FBI must be planting evidence. We actually heard that from Trump today. Um, Or there are nefarious deep state connections that the officials involved um, in issuing the warrant have that, that are driving this. A lot of this language gets couched. Um, Former White House advisor Stephen Bannon said, you know, the the FBI is the Gestapo, but then backed off right away and said Republicans need to win the midterms, which is quite a weak way to respond if you believe that you're dealing with a Nazi style secret police. Um, But Bueno says it's a useful rhetorical device. So they
25: kind of get the best of both worlds. They're able to get the message
24: across, but
25: also maintain that element of plausible deniability.
13: Okay, so conspiracy theories and increasingly violent rhetoric from prominent figures, that stuff seems to draw pro-Trump audiences in, but what are these influencers doing with that attention once they have it?
24: Right. So these are not just moments to be seen loudly defending the president, but it's it's time for marketing and branding. Uh, Show hosts can sell gold. Politicians, including Trump, are fundraising off this search warrant. They're selling merch. You can get a defund FBI shirt on Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's online store, for instance.
13: All right. So looking forward, Lisa, if the federal government proceeds with legal action against former President Trump, What does that mean? Does all of this online chatter, will it turn into real world action?
24: Every step that federal law enforcement takes is going to come with more of this cycle of speculation and self-promotion Um, And it's important to say the vast majority of the audiences who hear or respond to these things aren't actually going to act on phrases about war or fighting or violence. Um, But when you're talking about audiences of millions of some of these personalities um, on the media, it only takes a few or one person deciding that this is their moment for violence. That is NPR reporter Lisa Hagen. Lisa, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. Okay, now a look at the recovery
7: in the Gaza Strip and some of the harrowing stories from Palestinians after three days of fighting last weekend. The power is back on, but even as life resumes, people are still recalling the weekend of rapid evacuations and brushes with death. Just one year ago, 11 days of fighting between Israel and Palestinian militants left vast damage. This time around, the damage was more limited, but it's a reminder that the cycle of violence continues. And Fatma Tanis joins us now from Gaza City. Hi, Fatma.
26: Hi, Elsa. So can you tell us,
7: what is it like there today?
26: Right, so electricity is back. Here in Gaza, it comes from fuel that's trucked in from Israel. You know, Gaza's borders are controlled by Egypt and Israel, uh, and Israel restricts imports to Gaza, which they say is for security. Um, Now, this conflict was mainly between Israel and the Islamic Jihad militants. The much bigger militant group Hamas, which controls Gaza, stayed out of it, and that seems to have made it easier for goods to come back quickly. Uh, And so today, stores are just getting supplies back Because of the lack of electricity, the produce that's already in Gaza went bad, and one shop owner told me it was just in time as they had started running out of the essentials, like flour, milk, and sugar. Mm. Um, Of course, for the people who lost family members or homes, they're trying to figure out how to move on. The Palestinians are saying that at least 46 people, including 16 children, died. Uh, Israel says 20 of those were militants, and they say some of the civilians were actually killed by militant. Rockets that fell short.
7: And I understand that you have been personally talking to some people who, who barely survived. What are you hearing from them?
26: So I spoke with 21-year-old Mohammed Ibrahim Shamala, who is in his third year studying medicine, um, and I actually found him standing over the rubble of his building, which had four apartments. It was targeted in an airstrike and is now completely destroyed. Israel said they were trying to strike Islamic Jihad militants in Gaza, and we don't know exactly why this building was hit, but Shamallah says his brother uh, got a call from the Israelis telling them they had two minutes to evacuate. And so the whole... Family ran across the street to the waterfront where he says he was so scared and couldn't bear to see his home destroyed so he just looked out to the sea until it was all over and then came back to realize he'd lost everything.
27: Everything, my books, my uh, bags, everything uh, for uh, university and my clothes.
26: But he says he's not going to let this get in the way of his studies or his future as a doctor.
27: I will try to uh, to buy another box and to complete my university. I will not stop.
7: There has been, Fatma, this ongoing cycle of wars there for the past 15 years, right? Like with no end in sight. So I'm wondering when you talk to people about that seemingly endless cycle, what do they say to you about it?
26: You know, the general sense is just tremendous frustration and exhaustion. People's nerves are frayed from not being able to recover from one trauma by the time they get hit with the next one. Uh, and they feel like they're trapped in an endless war they have no control over. Um, I met Riyad Gadoum at the memorial for his five-year-old granddaughter, Alaa. Uh, she was one of the first casualties of the weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. And he just couldn't understand why Israelis didn't have more precise targeting. What was the fault of my girl? He kept asking. Why did they rob her of her life? But at the same time, you know, people are saying they're just, they have to get on with their lives. They don't have much of a choice. This is a densely populated, bustling city, and most of it is back up and running. You can now hear children playing outside. And I've already passed by two weddings happening here tonight.
7: Mm. That is NPR's Fatma Tanis in Gaza City. Thank you so much, Fatma.
26: Thank you.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Want to work in agriculture, but farm life is maybe not for you. Well, right now, the largest number of open positions in agriculture is actually in cities, and science backgrounds are especially in demand. Kate Grumke of Harvest Public Media reports on a new crop of
28: ag jobs. A parking lot with office buildings in suburban St. Louis is also lined with something a bit out of character. Rows of huge greenhouses. This is the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, a research institute devoted to studying plants. In a lab in one of the buildings on the campus, people are sitting at stations lined with trays of bacteria cultures. You can hear the hum of freezers and the buzz of a labeler. They're working on a bacterial product for plants used in agriculture.
29: It's almost like a probiotic
28: for a plant. That's Natalie Brakefield, vice president for research and discovery at New Leaf Symbiotics, a biotechnology startup. Although this is a science-heavy job, not every position here requires a PhD. Newleaf has some hands-on lab positions requiring just an associate's degree or a technical training program. Brakefield does have a PhD, but she says she came to this field in a roundabout way. She had a molecular biology degree but didn't really have any experience with plants before starting her first job as a lab technician.
29: Well, I knew I liked science. I didn't really know these kind of jobs existed. And that was my first real introduction into working with plants. And then I actually just fell in love with it.
28: While it worked out well for Brakefield, that's a key challenge for the agriculture industry, making sure people who like science know about these types of careers. Kim Kidwell sees this firsthand as an associate chancellor at the University of Illinois and a former dean of the College of Agriculture. When people meet
27: folks, that work in the ag industry, they're often shocked
28: about what they actually do for a living. And, you know, there's
27: a lot of engineering, there's a lot of business, there's a lot of computer science. There's so many
28: things that underpin what we do in food and ag, and people just don't connect the dots. Corteva Agriscience is also feeling the demand for workers. The Global Chemical and Seed Company lists about 500 open positions on its website right now, based all over the country. Angela Latcham leads the company's North America seed production and supply chain teams and says people think they have to have an agriculture degree to work for a company like Corteva. And that's far from the truth. We're looking for people with, you know, non-traditional backgrounds. Back in St. Louis, one program is trying to fill the worker pipeline by training students to work in labs. Elizabeth Boedeker runs St. Louis Community College's Center for Plant and Life Sciences. She says even without a four-year degree, Her students are in high demand, and salaries for these jobs are around $45,000.
10: You are getting some solid foundation, and there is a huge workforce demand right now. So the odds are pretty good you're going to get a job at the end.
28: One of her students is Kasia Wanyolka, who was exposed to agriculture early in Poland, where she grew up on a farm. Wanyolka has always been interested in science, but has an untraditional education background and never finished her degree.
26: But it's fine because everybody's education takes different pathways. And I think this is important to recognize that that not every pathway is good for everybody.
28: Fanyoka says now she's finally found her field, working part-time at a plant science startup while finishing up her community college program. After that, she says she wants to keep doing research in microbiology, not on a farm, but in the city. For NPR News, I'm Kate Grumke.
13: Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, reporting on food systems, agriculture and rural issues.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 72 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll pay a visit to Oregon, where it is peak blackberry season. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Coming to City Space on Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts lieutenant governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy, with a slight chance of some showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for some partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80. Mostly sunny, 80 degrees on Friday. The weekend looks nice. Sunny during the day on Saturday, a high around 78 degrees. Sunday will be mostly sunny, 82 will be the high. The same goes for Monday, sunny and 82 degrees. Again, right now, 72 degrees in Boston.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. Volante Farms in Needham, with local produce and groceries, now picking homegrown sweet corn, heirloom tomatoes, and more. VolanteFarms.com slash now picking. And the ICA's free Thursday nights. Enjoy an evening of live music on the waterfront and free museum admission. Tickets at ICABoston.org.
6: During the pandemic,
1: access to the Internet became more vital than ever. 2020 was a hard year because all of the sudden, all the things you've been working on become life and
6: death. I'm Kimberly Adams, building out broadband on tribal land.
22: Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 630 on 90.9
19: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers.
7: And I'm Elsa Chang. The GI Bill has a mythic significance in American history. Generations of veterans got educations and easy home loans, you know, the kinds of things that pull families up into the middle class. But that benefit has never really been available to one group of Americans who serve in very high numbers, Native Americans living on tribal land. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports from Lame Deer, Montana.
30: There's no VA office on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Lamedeer, but the tribe does have a Veterans Benefits Coordinator.
1: You know, so right now I think I have about 178 178
30: veterans. Jeannie Tusk met me in the basement of the Mennonite Church in Lamedeer. She would set up snacks and refreshments and gathered a bunch of Northern Cheyenne veterans so I could ask about their benefits. When I got there, though, it had been so long since they'd seen anyone from VA, they had questions for me. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you yeah.
3: about education and housing. If I'm eligible for it and I'm getting old, if I can get a home somewhere, I'd like to get a home.
29: I would be interested in a home loan because this is, um, like
30: I said, this is my homeland. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to be here for quite a while. Well,
3: like I said, i just kind of basically given up on them, you know?
30: That was Vietnam vet Manfred Soldier Wolfe saying he's given up on VA. Before him, you heard Army vets Milford Curtis Sr. and Doreen White. Their tribal benefits coordinator, Jeannie Bertesk, says it's a simple fact. No bank will finance a GI Bill home loan on tribal land.
1: I tried to explain it as best as I could. You know, I can't, I can't bend the rules.
30: That's because the banks can't take back tribal land if the loan defaults. This isn't new. Congress tried to fix this problem 30 years ago. In 1992, it created the Native American Direct Loan, so the VA can work directly with the tribe to finance the home. But the numbers are tiny. Bill Scheer with the Government Accountability Office recently did a report. He found that in the continental U.S., the VA has used this Direct Loan just 89 times in the past decade. Outreach by the VA gets less than 1% of eligible Native vets, Shear says.
17: And this would be an example of
30: how badly can a government program run. He says the VA doesn't collect good data about the results and doesn't seem to know its own manuals are out of date, referencing offices that don't exist anymore. Also, VA can't legally make a loan until it has a memorandum of understanding with each tribe, an MOU. That takes action from the tribes, but also outreach from VA. Bryant Lacey, who oversees the Native American direct loan at VA, says there are MOUs with only a fraction of the nearly 600 tribes in the United States.
21: So right now we're only capable of hitting nearly 20 percent of these federally recognized tribes with the VA program. So we are really focused on engaging with tribes that do not have these
14: memorandums of understanding with us.
30: Lacey has read the critical GAO report and he says the VA is already working on solutions.
14: October
21: 1st, In 2021, we created a Native American Direct Loan team that
31: is solely dedicated to processing the Native American Direct Loan program.
30: Lacey confirmed that the Northern Cheyenne Tribe is one of the few that already has an MOU to use the direct loan. That was news to the veterans I met on the reservation. Did you ever hear about the Native American Direct Loan?
32: No, I haven't, Never, never did hear of a direct loan.
30: Henry Spielman is a former Marine and member of the Northern Cheyenne Tribal Council. He came out to the meeting at the Mennonite Church, and then he took me back to the house he's renting on the reservation. There's a cattle gate at the end of his driveway to keep the horses and cows in the pasture. Above it, Spielman's house looks out over the low hills and those otherworldly sandstone formations of eastern Montana. Spielman could maybe get a regular VA home loan, but only to buy a house off the reservation. He doesn't want
32: to. It's our stronghold. We've been born and raised here, so it's just, I don't know, sense of feel safe here.
30: Deer visit the backyard almost every night, and the occasional black bear. A few grandkids live with him. One of them rides the quarter horse who's grazing out front.
32: And... As chaotic as it is, it's still home, and I don't know, it's just where I want to be. Spielman
30: thinks the owner of this house will sell it to him, but he needs a loan. Despite several government programs designed to make that happen, he can't seem to get one. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Lame Deer, Montana, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation.
13: Ask an Oregonian what summer tastes like, and they'll likely say blackberries. The Willamette Valley outside Portland ships out 90% of the frozen crops sold across the country. Dina Pritchett reports from Peak Blackberry Season.
10: Blackberries here are the size of your thumb, just dripping with juice. You can grab handfuls off the side of a hiking trail or even a highway. And as four-year-old cousins Zaha Kari-Stein and Lila Werner demonstrate, you can also just grab them from the backyard.
33: I think
14: I can get this one. We love blackberries because they're so tasty and sweet and kind of sour.
10: Varieties like Marionberry or Columbia Star fill pies and flavor local beer.
31: Welcome to Burgerville. Welcome, Shark. to you today.
10: They're even in the milkshakes at the Burgerville drive-through.
31: Our seasonal shakes, Marionberry, and, and it comes with whipped cream and a
20: Marionberry garnish.
10: Most people in the rest of the country haven't experienced the wonder of a fresh Oregon blackberry. I mean, they've had blackberries, but not Oregon's trailing blackberries, which are too delicate to ship fresh. They have this balance of tart and sweet, and it just pops. The flavor just pops. Bernadine Strick was Oregon State University's berry specialist for over 35 years. She says a lot of this comes down to climate. The Willamette Valley has mild winters, and usually temperate summers. And so that means that the plants grow well, but also the berries ripen more slowly. And that means that they develop prime flavor and aroma and color. They're sweet and tart, like a good glass of wine. Or as Strick sees it, that deep flavor of an Oregon wine is really the flavor of a blackberry. Good Pinot Noir that has ripened slowly in our weather here. Same thing, warm days, cool nights, will be characterized as having that blackberry aroma and flavor. So it's the other way around, I'd argue. There is a downside to being so well-suited, namely the thorny, invasive Himalaya blackberry, which takes over backyards. Himalaya blackberry was introduced into Oregon in the late 1800s. Um, through the wagon trains, because they thought it would grow well here. Boy, were they right. Although even those still make great jam. If you're not lucky enough to live in Oregon, you can find the berries canned or frozen. Bernadine Strick stresses that they are picked at peak ripeness, perfect for pie. And if you do live in Oregon, like cousins Zaha and Lila, just head outside.
7: These
5: blackberries are yummy. These Blackberries are the best Blackberries ever.
10: For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchup in Portland,
7: Oregon.
5: And to reach another Blackberry.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR and planning system for a changing world. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 71 degrees in Boston, just a minute before 5 o'clock. Ahead on all things considered, making sense of the Trump investigations. The forecast, mostly cloudy, slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80, mostly sunny and 80 degrees on Friday. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston.
34: I'm Midday host Jack Lepears and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Former President Trump was supposed to testify under oath, facing questions from New York's attorney general. That and the Mar-a-Lago search barely scratched the surface of the legal headaches he faces. It's Wednesday, August 10th. This is WBR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, making sense of the Trump investigations. Also, a new Harvard NPR poll finds that 69% of Native Americans say inflation is causing them to have trouble making ends meet. And the Inflation Reduction Act could be one of the biggest federal investments in clean energy in U.S. history. And some believe carbon capture technology is a piece of the clean energy puzzle.
31: It's the idea of capturing CO2 before it gets into the atmosphere.
0: But some people are skeptical. It's 501 Now This News
35: live from npr news i'm janine hurst former president donald trump spent hours in a courtroom in new york city today pleading the fifth in a scheduled deposition subpoenaed by the state's attorney general who's been looking into the Trump Organization's business practices for the past three years. And Piers Windsor-Johnston has more.
8: New York Attorney General Letitia James has been leading a civil probe into whether Trump provided misleading financial statements to tax authorities, lenders, and insurers. In a two-page statement, the former president said he had invoked his Fifth Amendment right against making self-incriminating statements. He also maintained that he did nothing wrong and accused the state attorney general of openly campaigning against him. The deposition in New York comes just days after the FBI executed a search warrant on Trump's Florida estate. The Justice Department's investigation appears to be focused on classified documents that Trump allegedly took from the White House before he left office. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
35: Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Rwanda, where he's expected to raise concerns about that country's support for a rebel movement in Democratic Republic of Congo. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with the Secretary.
6: Blinken's trip to both Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda follow reports that Rwandan troops have been involved in rebel activity in Eastern Congo. Blinken called the reports credible and promised Congolese leaders that he would discuss this with Rwandan President Paul Kagame. The secretary is also expected to raise the case of Paul Rusesabagina, the real-life hero from the movie Hotel Rwanda. He was convicted on terrorism charges here. The U.S., though, considers him wrongfully detained. He's a U.S. resident, and Blinken calls this, and similar cases, a priority for him. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Kigali.
35: The British Defence Ministry says Russia is recruiting a new military force to support operations in Ukraine. Villamarks has more.
4: In a regular tweeted update, the UK's Defence Intelligence Organisation said the new Russian force, known as the Third Army Corps, was being raised from volunteer battalions and would be based east of Moscow. Local Russian politicians had indicated recruits were being offered cash bonuses if deployed to Ukraine, the UK said, but the conflict's unpopularity meant the Corps was unlikely to reach its full strength. The UK said the new recruits, grouped into units by a geographic background, would unlikely be decisive in the campaign, where commanders must now both strengthen their defensive positions in southern Ukraine against a possible attack, but also continue their bombardments in the eastern Donbass region. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marx in London.
35: Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 535 points. That's up 1.6%. The Nasdaq up 360 points. The S&P 500 up 87. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Baker has signed a sports betting bill into law. The legislature sent the compromise measure to his desk last week. It allows wagering on professional and college sports, with some exceptions for games involving teams from Massachusetts colleges and universities. The new law calls for a 20 percent tax on mobile or digital wagering and a 15 percent tax on in-person sports wagering. Supporters hope to be able to, have, to accept wagers before the start of next month's football season, but state regulators have cautioned it might take months to get all the necessary rules in place. A group of ministers and civil rights activists want to na- want the name of Fennel Hall changed. They marched today through downtown Boston to demand action. WBUR's Christella Geller has more. I woke up this
10: with my... Their song echoed through the lobby of City Hall. They walked into council chambers in shirts that read, Change of the Name, Boycott Faneuil Hall, Slave Traders Hall. The effort is led by Reverend Kevin Peterson of the New
18: Democracy Coalition.
0: We're elated that the city council is um, recognizing that this process of the name change is about healing the
3: city.
10: From City Hall, the group walked through Faneuil Hall and staged a brief sit-in inside Quincy Market. Peterson says two city councillors express support, and he expects to see them file legislation soon to advance the name change effort. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra.
0: The three Democratic candidates for attorney general squared off in a debate today. WBUR's Sidney Bowles reports all three agreed the attorney general should be aggressive in prosecuting hate-based activities in Massachusetts.
7: Labor attorney Shannon Liz Reardon called for weekly briefings on
20: hate based activity from her staff.
0: I will work to make sure that we are kept informed
7: of these groups so that actions are taken to keep our communities safe.
20: Former
8: Boston City Council
26: President Andrea Campbell said she'd rely on an existing hotline at the AG's office.
8: It's
10: creating spaces for folks to call various government agencies to report what they're seeing.
7: And U.S. Department of Commerce attorney Quentin Palfrey focused on the need to protect civil liberties while monitoring hate.
14: We can crack down on violent extremists, crack down on white supremacists, and protect our civil liberties. We have to do both.
7: The winner of the Democratic primary will almost certainly face Republican Jay McMahon in November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles.
0: In sports, the Sox and the Braves go at it again tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80 degrees. Mostly sunny and 80 on Friday. The weekend looks nice. Sunny during the day on Saturday. The highs around 78. Sunday will be mostly sunny. 82 the
19: high. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio.
7: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City,
21: California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. You could be forgiven this week for wondering if you have wandered into a time warp, by which I mean pick up a newspaper, turn on cable news. Once again, it seems every headline is about Donald Trump. There's the hullabaloo over the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. That was Monday. In a totally separate development, the former president was supposed to testify under oath today. Facing questions from the New York attorney general, he took the fifth and declined to answer. And that barely scratches the surface of all the legal headaches that Trump is facing. Here to walk us through the many investigations underway is Barbara McQuaid, professor at University of Michigan Law School and a former U.S. attorney. She was appointed by then President Obama. Welcome.
12: Thanks very much, Mary Louise.
21: Let's start with the Mar-a-Lago search by the FBI on Monday. What question or questions are top of mind for you there?
12: Well, I think what we don't know is what crime was used as the basis for that search warrant. We don't know that yet. Was it something as serious as the Espionage Act? Was it simply uh, retention of government documents? Will Donald Trump be charged with a crime or did the government simply want to get its documents back? I think all of those questions will come out eventually. But until then, it really uh, raises more questions probably than it answers.
21: Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, today, I mentioned Trump took the fifth, answered no questions. Uh, This is in the fraud investigation led by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Where does that leave things?
12: You know, this is actually a smart decision. You know, Donald Trump has famously said only mobsters take the fifth, criminals take the fifth, etc., But when Bush came to shove, he did it himself. And it's really the best advice, I think, under the circumstances, because we know that in addition to Letitia James's civil investigation, uh, meanwhile, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has also been looking into some of the same issues for criminal fraud. And so if Donald Trump were to make statements in this civil case, those statements could be used against him even in a criminal case. And, and it may be that uh, the attorney general's office anticipated this This is what would happen. And now they can move on and assess the strength of their case. And it could be that they file a, a civil case um, for civil fraud here based on uh, tax claims. Uh, and maybe they can prove it even without his answers to the questions.
21: Meanwhile, uh, we've got a lot of meanwhiles here, but meanwhile, <laughs> down in Georgia, uh, there's a special grand jury investigating Trump's effort to overturn that state's election results. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, the president's former lawyer, has just been ordered by a Fulton County judge to testify. That's supposed to happen next week. There has been some discussion over whether local district attorney Fawny Willis might be more free to charge a former president uh, than her federal counterparts. What do you think?
12: Yeah, I don't know if the question about the the should charge question is any different, whether you're a state prosecutor or a federal prosecutor. But in terms of can she charge, I think that um, we may see charges there more quickly than we see federal charges. And that's for two reasons. One is that the scope of her investigation is just Uh, much smaller. She only has to focus on the conduct relating to Georgia, not the entire United States and the seven states involved in the fake electors scheme. But the other is, it appears that she's moving at a rapid clip. We have more visibility into what she's doing because she has to get a court order to bring subpoenas against witnesses who are out of state. And so we've seen Who She's calling before the grand jury, whereas in the federal system, what occurs in the grand jury is secret. But I think there's just less bureaucracy for her to work through. She gets to make the decision. She's not, uh, you know, it's not seven layers of review. Uh, And so I think for both of those reasons, it may be more likely that she files charges than that we see federal charges. Uh,
21: Meanwhile, another meanwhile here in Washington, there's, of course, the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th. They are paused for summer recess, but they're not done. And then a parallel investigation um, being conducted by the Justice Department into the events of January 6th. They have subpoenaed, among others, Pat Cipollone, uh, former President Trump's White House counsel. What's the status of this one?
12: Yeah, you know, I think they are going to have to either negotiate or litigate his claims of attorney clients and executive privilege. But ultimately, the law favors the Justice Department getting his testimony. When he went before the January 6th committee, the committee, uh, I think, was willing to take half a loaf. They negotiated with him to get timely testimony, willing to give up certain areas in exchange for uh, certain areas that they were interested in. But I think the Justice Department will insist on all of it. And I think they'll litigate it. And if they do, I think they'll win and they'll be able to get his testimony. And that could be really important. I think the only other person who might know more about uh, Trump's role in all of the January 6th activities is Mark Meadows. His former Um, chief of staff. (laughs) Yes. I think we'll have to wait to see whether he is uh, a defendant, a witness, or neither. So at some point, Merrick Garland is going to have to make a decision about charging. I don't anticipate that will be before the midterm elections. I think there's just too much work to do. But I think in the early part or mid part of 2023, he's going to have to make a decision whether to charge or decline to bring charges. So... The
21: former president is keeping his lawyers busy, to put it mildly. If you were an attorney for Donald Trump, which, which, if any, of these probes would be keeping you awake at night?
12: I think in the short term, the Georgia probe, because I think that's the one that's most likely to result in charges in the short term. Also, you know, this, this takes a lot of steps to get there, but if Donald Trump is elected president again and takes office in 2025, he could pardon himself for a federal offense. He can't pardon himself for a state court offense in Georgia. So I think that's the one that I'd be keeping my eye on, at least uh, for the moment.
21: You just teed up my next question. Any of this effectively able to stop him from launching another White House bid?
12: I don't think so. Um, You know, there's been some talk this week that one of the charges, 18 U.S.C. Section 2071, has a provision in it for someone who um, wrongfully retains government documents shall be disqualified from serving in uh, future federal office. But I can't imagine that that would pass constitutional muster when it comes to the president. That office, uh, the qualifications are defined by the Constitution. I don't think you can use a statute to supersede that. So I don't think so. I think we could have this very unusual situation where someone could be charged in simultaneously running for president.
21: University of Michigan Law School Professor Barbara McQuaid, thank you so much. Thank you, Mary Louise.
7: No other racial or ethnic group in the country is feeling as much financial strain right now as Native Americans. That's according to a national poll from NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It found that inflation has caused 69 percent of Native Americans' significant financial problems. Kadia Riddle reports from Oregon's Warm Springs Indian Reservation
27: it's a hazy hot morning in warm springs a few hours southeast of portland tribal member jake billy leans on his car and he tells this story a long time ago there was someone
32: special in his life well see i almost married that girl um it was very close it was iffy
27: in the end they split up but billy stayed in touch with his ex and her family
32: and that's the way i hope to live my life have connections that that can stay with us longer than in the moment
27: recently his ex's sister died he wanted to go to the funeral but he couldn't
32: i don't have enough money resources uh, to to get over there
27: the funeral was a three-hour drive he just couldn't afford the gas
32: I, i said my goodbyes from here i guess
27: the quiet assault of inflation, says Billy, has made for heart-wrenching choices like this one. It robbed him of this small but sacred ritual.
32: You know, I wanted to help the family and support the family, which is something that Natives do. We support each other whenever we can. It's, it's, it's our culture. And when that's kind of jeopardized, we're it's slightly diminished in that capacity.
27: More than 4,000 people live in Warm Springs. For them, it's not just getting to out of town funerals that's hard to afford. For some people here, the closest full size grocery store is almost 40 miles away.
22: We're in a food desert.
27: Demas Martinez is with the Warm Springs Community Action Team. It's a nonprofit that helps people build financial skills. Martinez says folks here lately are planning as few grocery trips as possible. That includes his own family of five.
17: We only go twice a month now, you know, so we're saving 160 bucks in gas, you know what I mean? So.
27: There is one way to get off the reservation without paying for gas. Tribal member Sheila Thrasher is waiting at the bus stop on this day. She's riding to the grocery store. She lives with her two adult daughters and their families. Uh, 13 in that house. So, Wow, you're feeding 13 people. I'm not
29: feeding them all, but we help each other. So when they need something, if I have something, we share. That's the only way that basically families get around here. Before
27: inflation ballooned, Thrasher would often catch rides with family members or neighbors. But with everyone driving less now, she says those rides are harder to come by. To get to the bus stop, she rode her bike. She loads it on the front of the bus before boarding. 25 minutes later, she wheels her bike into the store. I uh, have a question, can I park my bike while I do shopping in here? I don't have a lot for it. Thrasher can only fill one bag. That's all she'll be able to get home on her bike. She has one hour until the bus comes back, and just $32 to spend. First stop, frozen foods. Uh, blueberries. You
29: look at the price there. Yeah, 3.99. I want to get the bigger one, but no, with everything else I need to get, I have to get the smaller one. So
27: How how long will what whatever you get today last you?
29: Oh, shoot. Well, just show you know, not long. You know. just a couple of days probably. Yeah.
27: Back at the reservation, Thrasher takes her bike back off the bus. Then she puts her arms through the handles of the shopping bag.
29: a big shift in find ways to backpack it up.
27: She says the 13 people in her household live in a food budget of about $500 a month in public assistance, plus whatever is left over from paychecks after other bills. The money's not stretching as far lately, but they're finding a way. She says no one will starve.
23: Things we got to do to get by,
27: but it's all good. One thing her family has done to deal with inflation, they've told the kids no more snacks, only meals. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Warm Springs, Oregon.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 71 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, a conversation about the technology and future of carbon capture and what the Inflation Reduction Act would do for the carbon capture industry. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In business news, Massachusetts may turn to Maine for its next effort to further decarbonize its energy sources. A climate bill on Governor Baker's desk would give Massachusetts the authority to team up with Maine to bid on and procure green energy. It's expected the two states could focus their efforts on proposals to create wind farms in far northern Maine. On Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. The Dow finished up more than 1.5%, 535 points at 33,309. NASDAQ rose almost 3%, 361 points at 12,855. The S&P 500 up 2%, or 88 points to close at 42.10.
19: WBUR supporters include Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free holiday is this weekend. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at innuendonatic and innuendo.com. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
0: Looking for a book to read on vacation? We've got page-turning reading recommendations. Sign up now at wbur.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows around 63. Showers early tomorrow then making way for partly sunny skies. The highs near 80.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between. Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from
13: NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Can the Inflation Reduction Act change the world? Some supporters of the massive bill that passed in the Senate early this week hope so, for its plans to slow global warming. Now, this bill has not yet passed the House, but with more than $300 billion toward climate programs, it would mark the largest federal clean energy investment in U.S. history. And one piece of that puzzle involves carbon capture technology. Some scientists say. it could be one of our biggest defenses against the climate crisis by reducing emissions. But there are other scientists and activists who aren't happy with this part of the bill. We're going to talk about all of that with Jamil Farbs. He is a principal at Evolved Energy Research, which is a consulting company focused on carbon reduction strategies. Jameel, welcome to All Things Considered.
31: Thanks, Juan. happy to be here.
13: Happy to have you. So I know that this is just one part of a complex process, but in simple terms, can you help us understand what carbon capture means and how it works, specifically as it relates to climate goals?
31: So the concept behind carbon capture is really as simple as it sounds. It's the idea of capturing CO2 before it gets into the atmosphere. And there's some nuance on other applications work that might change the definition slightly. But generally you look at big industrial processes, so it could be burning coal to produce electricity, it could be a cement kiln used in making concrete, or it could be producing ethanol for a biofuel. And all of those things are gonna produce CO2. And the idea of carbon capture is as that CO2 gets produced, we try to remove the stream of CO2 out of the other gases so we can do something with it, either use it for industrial processes or to make fuels or potentially sequester it underground.
13: I want to turn now to the Inflation Reduction Act, that big bill that passed the Senate earlier in the week. When you learned about the amount of money that is included in this bill, not just for carbon capture, but for all of the climate provisions, what went through your mind?
31: I think excitement, because it's really the biggest movement we've seen this country do towards mitigating climate change. It's really a major investment, both for renewable energy, but also around these nascent technologies that we need to get more experience deploying at scale, which I very much consider carbon capture to be in that bucket.
13: There have been carbon capture and sequestration projects for years now, but generally speaking, they have been over budget, closed down, or even just ineffective when it comes to making a difference in emissions in a cost effective way. What makes this moment different?
31: I do think that's true and it's important to recognize this proposal right now would be for effectively 10 years of guaranteed incentives, which is really going to help developers. I think the other piece is that the urgency factor is a little bit clearer now. And, you know, the U.S. has had a hard time taking federal action on climate change. And I it it's becoming clear what's necessary to get to net zero emissions by 2050, right? We have a better idea of what solutions are needed for that. So I think particularly for the realm of carbon capture, power generation with carbon capture is one piece of the solution. But we expect after sort of the target of the bill, so in the time frame of twenty forty and beyond, carbon capture is going to have a critical role to play to help produce clean fuels.
13: I'm wondering if you could help us understand why is carbon capture technology seen by some as a concession to oil companies, a concession that climate activists and even some Democrats who are supporters of this bill were not happy about?
31: Well, I think the key piece is that carbon capture potentially presents a solution where oil and gas production can look a lot like it does today. If the technology works as we expect it to, it doesn't do anything about all the production. So I think there's some concern that this could just be a delaying tactic, that it's not actually a viable solution, but it's something that oil and gas producers want to champion because it helps them have a role in this decarbonized future.
13: What do you say to environmental justice advocates who say that this technology will not do enough to help the communities that are most impacted by pollution from oil companies?
31: I think that that's a real concern. The analysis that we do, we recognize that it has limited things to say about real localized impacts from just energy use in general, but particularly from fossil fuel production and use. So my hope is that while this investment is coming, assuming this bill passes through the house, that we come up with better and more robust planning processes to really capture the level of concerns about continued fossil fuel use like this, and try to come up with more durable solutions that help the climate, but also address pressing environmental justice concerns.
13: Jamil Farbs of Evolved Energy Research. Thank you so much for helping us understand this all a little bit better.
31: Thanks. Happy to be here.
7: In Wisconsin last night, Tim Michaels won a contentious Republican primary for governor, thanks in large part to an endorsement from former President Trump. Now Michaels faces Democratic Governor Tony Evers in what's expected to be one of the closest watched races in the country. As Wisconsin Public Radio's Sean Johnson reports, Evers says Michaels can't run from his pro-Trump rhetoric.
34: Battle lines were drawn in Wisconsin's Republican primary for governor, and it wasn't hard to tell which side people were on. GOP candidate Rebecca Clayfish had former Vice President Mike Pence and former Governor Scott Walker supporting her. But Tim Michaels had the X factor.
17: You have the opportunity to vote for true conservative warriors, starting with the next governor of Wisconsin, Tim Michaels.
34: Former President Donald Trump's endorsement of Michaels was everywhere. Trump held a rally for Michaels in Wisconsin last week, and Michaels bragged about the endorsement in TV ads. In his victory speech Tuesday, he thanked Trump for his support. He
23: wanted to drain the swamp. We found out it's a really big swamp. And I know that Madison needs firm executive leadership, and that's what I'm going to do as governor.
34: With Michaels' win, University of Wisconsin-Madison political scientist Barry Burden says it shows Trump remains powerful here.
9: Donald Trump continues to be a real change maker in the Republican Party. His endorsement of Tim Michaels probably helped put Michaels over the top in the governor's race.
34: But that was the primary. And Burden says things are going to change.
9: Now that we move into the general election phase, Trump is probably a drag on many Republican campaigns, at least statewide ones. This is a, a competitive state where the winner might win by a slim margin. Uh, Trump is not viewed well by the public.
34: In 2018, Democrat Tony Evers beat Walker by around a percentage point to win the governorship. Wisconsin's governor's race is one of just a handful nationwide expected to be toss-ups this year. Speaking to reporters this morning, Evers said Michael's relationship with Trump will remain a campaign centerpiece.
3: Trump owns him. He owns Trump. Oats is connected to Trump. That's his problem. That's not mine.
34: Governor Evers says Michael's is on the record on key issues that are out of step with most Wisconsin residents. For example, during the primary, he questioned President Joe Biden's 2020 victory. The idea
3: that he might try to become, uh, he being Michaels, a moderate Republican is just beyond belief now.
34: There are signs that Michaels is already trying to thread that political needle. His Tuesday night speech included new material pledging to work with Democrats to get things done. And as Ebers continues to try to link Michaels to Trump, the Michaels campaign will return the favor and try to link Evers to President Biden. For NPR News, I'm Sean Johnson in Madison.
19: WBUR supporters include BU's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to health marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu met. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org.
11: I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston,
28: famed Harvard professor Raj Chetty. On his new study on social capital, it says people in poverty need to know people with wealth to move up. Then the head of a local
7: nonprofit weightlifting program says the benefits flow the other way, too. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR,
11: Boston's NPR news station.
23: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden signed health care legislation today that ends a long effort to expand benefits to military veterans who were exposed to toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan.
3: The law expands access to health care and disability benefits for veterans harmed by toxic exposure. It empowers the Department of Veterans Affairs to move quickly to determine service members' illness and related military service to see if they qualify...
23: Today's ceremony was personal for Biden, whose son Beau died of cancer after his service in Iraq. Burn pits were used to dispose of chemicals, cans, plastics and medical equipment, among other things. The legislation will also help vets get disability payments without having to prove their illness resulted from their service. It's the latest in a string of bipartisan measures Biden has signed into law in the past week. Ukraine's president says he wants to liberate the southern peninsula of Crimea, which Russia took control of in 2014. But as NPR's Joanna Kakissis tells us, the Ukrainian government denies it was involved in explosions at a Russian airbase in Crimea yesterday.
29: In a video posted to his Telegram page, President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia's war against Ukraine began with Crimea and must end with its liberation. He said Russia had brought war, repression, and economic ruin to Crimea, turning one of the best places in Europe into one of the most dangerous. Russian media reported that at least one person was killed on Tuesday after several explosions at a Russian airbase on the western coast of Crimea. Social media videos showed Russian tourists leaving the beach in fear as smoke billowed from the site. An advisor to Zelensky says Ukraine did not bomb the air base and hinted that pro-Ukrainian partisans were responsible. Joanna Kisses, NPR News,
18: Odessa.
23: Stocks finish much higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This
0: is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden says a grand jury will investigate the case of a transit police officer accused of pointing a gun at a motorist. The case has raised questions about how Hayden's office has handled the case and has prompted calls for his resignation. WBR's Deborah Becker reports.
5: Hayden's office issued a statement saying the grand jury will review the case of white MBTA police officer Jacob Green. Green allegedly pointed a gun at a black motorist during an altercation in April of last year. The statement follows a Boston Globe investigation, which said that Hayden's office had indicated it was not going to prosecute. In today's statement, Hayden said he would not jeopardize the integrity of his office by not pursuing charges against a police officer. Green's attorney now says he's no longer representing Green because he is a potential grand jury witness for 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Governor Charlie Baker signed into law most of a major transportation infrastructure bill this afternoon. Lawmakers approved the more than $11 billion investment package last month. The legislation includes money for the East-West Rail Project to expand passenger train connections from Western Mass to the Boston area. There's also money to increase the number of electric vehicle charging stations in the state. It also provides financial support to the MBTA to help it address federal safety recommendations. One day after being acquitted for the 2019 highway crash that killed seven in New Hampshire, a West Springfield truck driver is reportedly in the custody of immigration officials. A spokesperson for the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement tells MassLive Vladimir Zovkovsky is now awaiting an appearance before an immigration judge. He is a Ukrainian national. Federal immigration officials say he has faced prior convictions, including for drug possession and larceny. Yesterday, Zukovsky was found not guilty of negligent homicide. Members of the Mashpee Wampanoag community are calling for a boycott of the Plymouth Patuxet Museums, saying it's failed to uphold its duty to honor Indigenous history. Paula Peters previously worked at the Living History Museum and says it has cut back on its Wampanoag interpretive site in recent years.
24: Less interpretation, less
29: programming. They went from having several covered home site exhibits to
26: barely maintaining one home site covered exhibit.
0: Peters says several Native American museum staffers have resigned. The museum says it's working to repair storm damage at the interpretive site, and it's lined up funding for a new Indigenous Programs building. A surgical oncologist at Dana-Farber and Brigham and Women's Hospital is the new head of the National Cancer Institute. Monica Bertinoli was appointed to the position by President Joe Biden. The Institute is a federal agency that coordinates cancer research. In sports, the Red Sox and the Braves go at it again tonight over at Fenway Park. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80, mostly sunny and 80 degrees on Friday. Weekend looks nice, sunny during the day on Saturday. The highs will be around 78. Sunday will be mostly sunny, 82 degrees the high. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy. Partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From NPR News, this is All Things
13: Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. To Texas now, where the state's juvenile detention system is so turbulent that they have mostly stopped accepting newly sentenced teenagers. And the staffing shortage is so severe that many children reportedly spend up to 23 hours each day locked in their cells. Jolie McCullough is a reporter for the Texas Tribune who has been reporting on these issues. And just as a warning, our conversation may include some details that could be difficult to hear. Jolie, welcome to All Things Considered.
36: Yeah, thanks for having me.
13: I wonder if you can start just by painting a picture for us. What is it like for kids who are living in these detention centers?
36: Yeah. So there are five uh, youth prisons across Texas, mostly in rural areas. And what we're seeing now, because they're so understaffed, is children locked in their cells, which is really just a mattress and maybe a bookshelf most of the time for, as they've reported, up to 23 hours a day. And what we're seeing with that is, you know, children have reported having to use water bottles as toilets. Mm -hmm. um, And more and more we're seeing Uh, they're hurting themselves either out of distress or desperation because they see it as their only way to get out of isolation.
13: Give us a sense of the scope here. How many kids are we talking about and how did they wind up in these centers?
36: The Texas Juvenile Justice Department has shifted a lot over the years. There used to be thousands of of children um, locked in more than five prisons. And there has been a shift during crisis after crisis to to keep more children closer to home. So now there are fewer than 600 youth in these facilities. Um, Generally, you have to have committed a felony. There's often very intense needs there that are, at this point, they're not being met.
13: I know earlier we talked about staffing shortages, perhaps responsible for some of this. Do you have a sense of what that stems from?
36: The Texas Juvenile Justice Department has really always been, it's always been in crisis. Um, It's been more than a decade of crisis after crisis. There's sexual abuse scandals, um, mistreatment uh, allegations. They're actually under federal investigation right now from the U.S. Department of Justice. And you know, with this, it's a very difficult job. There's always been staffing issues. Turnover has always been very high. Um, what we saw last year was that very high turnover rate, where about forty percent, you know, of detention officers. Are leaving during the year hits more than 70%. And the agency has blamed its ongoing issues tied in with this, quote, great resignation throughout the country, mm. um, very low pay when more people are able to work remotely. Or in this case, they would be able to make the same amount working at the local gas station, local convenience store. So they're just trapped in this emergency right now where they They can't seem to keep officers in the job, and the children are hurting themselves and acting out more.
13: As we've been talking, you have spelled out some incredibly bleak conditions for these young people. And for me, it raises the question, what should an ideal day or an ideal situation look like for someone who is in juvenile detention as these kids are?
36: Yeah, so previously um, they've been able to have school um, granted, this isn't like you go to a classroom and everyone's in the same lesson. It's generally more each student is kind of working on a computer or when they're not able to leave, they're working on just work packets. Um, they get recreation time, you know, either on a track or a basketball court. And there is a lot of, you know, therapy. There's a lot of programming because very different from the adult prisons is youth prisons are their primary goal is not punishment. It's rehabilitation because these are children.
13: The Texas House committee that is responsible for oversight held a hearing yesterday and this issue came up. What solutions were presented?
36: There's a lot of discussion about what to do next. So after our reporting last week, um, some Democrats in the Texas House have called for a special session asking the governor to call lawmakers back to immediately address this, to immediately be able to pass laws. They're asking for things like, you know, an immediate pay raise. And they're asking for things like maybe closing some of these prisons and looking at other alternatives. They're looking at things of reinstating some therapeutic, some um, violence prevention practices that have been cut, given how short-staffed they are. And one of the representatives who's been working in juvenile justice for a long time says maybe we need to even further limit who counties can send to these facilities. Ideally, you know, there would be none of these children who would be having to go to these facilities, and everyone could get help elsewhere. Jolie McCullough is a criminal
13: justice reporter for the Texas Tribune. Thank you so much for your reporting.
36: Thank you.
7: Fireflies are synonymous with summer in many parts of the country, but photographing them can be a real challenge. One man has spent almost a decade perfecting a process that produces glowing, otherworldly landscapes. And reporter
29: Lara Pellegrinelli joined him in New York's Hudson Valley. Photographer Pete Mountie heads out for work each night, flashlight in hand, wearing highway safety gear. His oversized orange t-shirt and its strip of reflectors match the traffic cones piled in the trunk of his car.
17: Almost everybody thinks I'm a surveyor, except state troopers.
29: During the summer months, from dusk until the moon rises, he finds his subjects along quiet stretches of Farmstand Highway, in abandoned fields and hidden pockets of woods, and the grassy tracks underneath power lines within a 30-mile radius of his home in Tivoli, New York.
17: I never get tired of it.
29: Maunee photographs fireflies. That is, any night the temperature stays above 60 degrees and there isn't a downpour.
17: I never get tired of the chill challenge and of the puzzle of trying to construct the images and trying to construct a good image because it's not enough for me to have the bugs do the heavy lifting.
29: A good image starts with location.
17: You see them? This has a lot more than where we were
29: before. Working by starlight, Mauni sets his camera on a tripod. He points it towards a line of trees with an electrical tower behind it. Turns out that the house behind us is causing a small problem. Right,
17: except for how incredibly bright that one little tiny porch light is.
29: From the house with the porch light, a man emerges, dragged by an overzealous golden doodle. How are you doing? Mountie tells him that his property is an off the grid hub of activity. It might not look like anything special, but it's an important spot to document species increasingly affected by light pollution, pesticides, and habitat destruction. Mommy gets the guy to turn out the porch light. It's now very dark, but I can see thousands and thousands of dancing lights in short bursts and more sustained flashes, making patterns that hover and float. Mauni will leave his camera in position for up to five hours, collecting as many as 800 timed exposures. He compiles these in Photoshop layer by layer, creating single images that are at once wildly, chaotically real and utterly fantastic.
17: The bioluminescent insects are a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of all the other insects that are out there. So they're kind of giving us a little bit of an indication through the photographs of what's there, which is a lot that we don't see.
29: To help others see what they might be missing, Mountie's collecting information for a project at the BioFrontiers Institute of the University of Colorado Boulder. There, scientists are creating the first dictionary to match firefly species with their distinctive flash patterns. For NPR News, I'm Lara Pellegrinelli in New York.
7: You would not believe if 10 million fireflies
29: this is All Things Considered
7: from NPR News. Across the country, there is fear and confusion inside some hospitals as doctors try to give the best medical care while staying within the bounds of new abortion restrictions. That is especially true in Louisiana. As Rosemary Westwood with member station WWNO reports, doctors say a new abortion ban could put their patients and themselves at risk.
25: Dr. Nina Breakstone works in the emergency department of a New Orleans hospital. For the last month, she's been going to work under a cloud of uncertainty. I'm
20: terrified for myself as a woman of reproductive age, and I'm terrified for my patients. A Louisiana
25: law now bans nearly all abortions. There is an exception to avoid a substantial risk of death to the pregnant patient or a threat of serious permanent impairment to a life-sustaining organ. But those exceptions are left up to doctors. Get it wrong, and the risks are enormous. I don't want to go to jail for 10 years uh, for doing the right thing by my patients. Brickstone said she also doesn't want to deny them medical care. She sees a lot of miscarriages in the ER, but the law only allows abortions for miscarriages if the fetus is already dead. Brickstone said waiting for the fetus to die before she acts could be risky for her patients.
20: No one has any idea how many things go wrong, how fast things can go wrong. Uh, and and how deadly that can be.
25: Dr. Tara Castellano is an oncologist specializing in cancers of reproductive organs. Castellano is worried that cancer patients with a less serious diagnosis might be denied abortions they need to start treatment, like chemotherapy. It will just depend on their doctor's interpretation of the law.
29: If people are skittish and if you're risk-averse as a, a physician, you might just not want to even go down that road as an option.
25: Castellano said the law has fundamentally changed medicine.
2: You know, it's like inviting legislators and, and administrators and politicians into the exam room.
25: And potentially prosecutors. Ochsner Health, Louisiana's largest health system, has told doctors it will defend them against criminal charges. But that doesn't protect doctors from being investigated. Proponents of the state's abortion ban argue the law is clear. Angie Thomas of Louisiana Right to Life, said they consulted with doctors in drafting the exception. I asked her what she'd say to doctors afraid of prosecution.
33: I mean, I would tell them, use good faith medical judgment. I mean, it's don't be fearful of, of that if you are protecting their life.
25: Dr. Will Williams is a New Orleans maternal fetal medicine specialist, meaning he sees the most severe pregnancy complications. He sometimes has to tell women that continuing their pregnancies gives them a 20- or 30-fold risk of death. Even for those patients, who should still be allowed abortions under the law, Williams worries they won't get them because they're afraid.
14: And I do believe that there will be women who ultimately um, have very severe health outcomes, those including death.
25: Nina Brakestone, the emergency room physician, said she's going to continue to provide abortions for miscarriages. I think that what I will do is do what I think is best and hope that I don't get charged and um, chart defensively. That's been a key bit of advice from hospitals to doctors in Louisiana. Record everything in a patient's chart to defend your choices. And if you're still worried, call a hospital lawyer just in case. For NPR News, I'm Rosemary Westwood in New Orleans.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 71 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on WBUR is All Things Considered, how farm conservation has become the latest battle in the culture wars. That's ahead here on WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Just go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80, mostly sunny and 80 on Friday. Weekend looks nice, sunny during the day on Saturday, sunny again on Sunday. Temperatures will be around 80 degrees. Trump's destructive tendencies with documents, the lack of security protocols at Mar-a-Lago. All of
29: this is why they want these documents back. The main reason being they belong in the archives. And the FBI appears to have made the calculation that the only way to get this back was to swoop in and get them by force. I'm Michael
14: Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa
13: Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The Inflation Reduction Act includes $20 billion to boost voluntary land conservation in farm country, and it is coming at a time when some Republican politicians are attacking the Biden administration after it announced a goal to conserve 30 percent of the country's land and water by the year 2030. Nebraska Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert reports on the rhetoric around land conservation.
20: Conservation programs have been a cornerstone of agriculture since the 1930s Dust Bowl. The government has paid farmers and ranchers to set aside land to protect natural resources. And it's worked. There's less erosion and safer groundwater. But now, in some ag circles, conservation is under attack, seemingly for political purposes. Here's Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts at an Earth Day event in Lincoln, Nebraska last April.
22: There are radical environmentalists that are pushing 30%, 50% of the earth, not to be used by humans. That should be very scary.
20: He's referring to the Biden administration's America the Beautiful initiative. It's essentially a goal to triple conservation of the nation's land and water to 30%. It's better known as 30 by 30. Ricketts has spearheaded a movement that frames the initiative as a federal land grab. He and other Republican politicians in states like Colorado, Texas, and Virginia suggest the government wants land out of agriculture and will use conservation to trick landowners if that's what it takes.
22: And if we don't stand up for those private property rights, we are undermining the very foundation of our republic.
20: Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the government will not be taking land. And he only wants to help farmers and ranchers protect their soil water, and wildlife. And farmers and ranchers want that, too. In a Nebraska poll, 95% of Democrats and Republicans supported voluntary conservation. Researcher Lori Weigel says that's the highest approval she sees these days.
24: This is one of the most
20: bipartisan things I've tested in years, (laughs) to be honest. Even so, the president's goal to boost conservation is not going over well in some parts of the country. This unusual pushback makes sense to Elizabeth Rowe, who studies rural environmental views and says most farmers feel a strong sense of responsibility for their land. But that can be coupled with a strong skepticism for the federal government.
10: I'm not surprised by the idea that you can have communities that really value conservation and oppose this 30 by 30 policy.
20: Rowe's research at Duke University showed rural residents often feel they're blamed for climate change and left out of government decisions. John Hansen is with the Nebraska Farmers Union. He says while 30 by 30 may have some gaps, Governor Ricketts and others are lying about farmers losing control through conservation programs.
0: What he has been doing is to create question marks and fears and
30: suspicions where there should be none.
20: Dean Fetty and his brother Wayne use conservation practices on their Nebraska farm. They say they aren't at all worried about losing ownership.
3: There is no land grab. The government is not going to take your farm there to help protect that ground. They want to see working farms continue to be working farms. It's just opposite of what's being told.
20: But many have bought into the land grab message as a political one. And some rural counties across the country have formally opposed the 30 by 30 goal. So even with widespread support, It appears that conservation is being used as bait to try to turn rural voters against Democratic policies. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rempert. Hey, do
7: you remember payola, like when a commercial radio station would play a song without disclosing they were paid to play that song? I mean, that's been illegal for decades now. And newsrooms, likewise, as a practice, do not receive money from sources. So What about podcasts? How far does pay to play go in the current podcast industry? Well, it turns out there is a growing trend where some podcasts are getting paid by people who want to be guests on their shows. Ashley Carmen wrote about this practice. She's a reporter who covers the business of audio media for Bloomberg and joins us now. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Ashley, it's no secret that there are podcasts out there that do pay guests to make an appearance on their show, but your reporting shows kind of the reverse, that sometimes a guest pays the show to appear on the show. Can you explain how this works generally?
33: Yeah, so the idea is really that A guest perhaps wants access to a podcaster's desired audience, maybe they want to buy out all the ad spaces, they don't want any other advertisers on the show. So in those cases, at least for certain shows, they might be willing to do that for a certain price. And so the idea is basically that this guest pays that price, it becomes their episode, they're interviewed, they talk about their business, they talk about whatever they want to talk about. And
7: how much money are we usually talking here?
33: It can really vary, but my reporting found up to $50,000 for one of those appearances. Mm -hmm.
7: And so far, of the podcasts that you're seeing do accept money from guests for the guests to appear on their shows. What kinds of podcasts seem to be doing this right now?
33: Through my conversations, I've seen that the practice is particularly happening in the wellness, cryptocurrency, and business space. Obviously, in the wellness space, some of the shows I highlight that had paying guests focus on folks who sell supplements and, like, minerals So, obviously, direct response, direct to consumer advertisers are pretty popular in the podcast space generally. And so I can imagine if you're selling minerals or supplements online or something like that, maybe you see it as a potentially lucrative opportunity.
7: I mean, this does raise this larger question. What is the regulatory framework around podcasts? Like, how closely does the FTC currently regulate podcasts? Are there other agencies that look at what podcasts are doing? And set
33: down rules. Yeah. As far as the FTC goes, you know, they they weren't able to comment on any specific situations for my story. So I honestly have no idea if they've looked into podcasting. Um, and as far as other government agencies, again, I don't think podcasting has really become this focus point, at least to my knowledge. You know, I'm not aware of it you know in the actual podcast space there is the interactive advertising bureau which focuses on advertising you know there are entities that look at standards around different things in podcasting but this particular practice I would say, has not been widely discussed or investigated.
7: Interesting. I mean, what might be a relevant difference between the podcast space and, say, the commercial radio space where it is illegal to pay to be played on a station and not to disclose that payment? Like, why might it be – More justifiable for podcasts to do this?
33: Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily more justifiable or just hasn't been widely discussed or even known about that this practice happens. And obviously, radio is a much older medium. Payola and musicians, it was an entire radio issue. So I think podcasts are just relatively new and not something that has been widely thought through yet. At the same time, I think we're seeing that. Of course, there's lots of journalistic enterprises that like doing podcasting. But of course, there's also the influencer side of things where you bring a little bit of that spot and con, hashtag ad behavior into the podcast world. And again, because it hasn't been widely discussed, there's not necessarily these standards to focus on it.
7: Right. That is Ashley Carmen from Bloomberg. Thank you very much for joining us.
33: Yeah, thank you for having me.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 71 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, how inflation may affect the upcoming midterms. It'll be mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The low's around 63 degrees, showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs around 80 degrees, mostly sunny, and 80 degrees on Friday. Again, right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Inflation cooled a bit last month thanks to falling gasoline prices, but it's still plenty hot in Florida where voters in a key swing district are grappling with the high cost of food, housing, and electricity. It's Wednesday, August 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, Russia has become increasingly aggressive. Now its neighbor to the east, Latvia, is looking to bolster its defenses.
16: We want to be like a small hedgehog, which is uh, with many needles. So if you touch us, you will bleed a lot
0: as well. How Latvia is growing its military. And it's been a year since Kabul fell to the Taliban. We'll hear from the lieutenant colonel who led the Marine Corps at the city's airport at that chaotic time and hear how the final day unfolded. It's 6.01. Now this news.
35: Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Donald Trump says he's taken the Fifth Amendment and refused to answer any questions by the New York Attorney General. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more.
2: The former president traveled to the state attorney general's office in Lower Manhattan for a long-delayed deposition but refused to give any substantive answers in the inquiry into long-running fraud at the Trump Organization. Instead, Donald Trump said on social media, under the advice of counsel, he declined to answer questions. The move was expected. In a previous deposition in the same case, Trump Organization executive Eric Trump also invoked the Fifth Amendment 500 times. The New York case is a civil case, which means, unlike a criminal case, investigators can make an adverse inference when witnesses refuse to answer questions under oath. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York.
35: Foreign ministers from the Group of Seven are calling on Russia to withdraw from an occupied nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. And Piers Julian Yulian Haida has more.
14: The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has become a focal point in Russia's war on Ukraine, as both sides trade accusations that the other has fired towards the plant. While the United Nations has remained neutral on who bears responsibility for rocket and artillery strikes near the vulnerable site, the G7 condemned Russia's presence there as provocative and demanded that all nuclear facilities be handed back to Ukrainian control. Russia, meanwhile, has called for a special session of the UN Security Council to condemn Ukraine for its military presence near the plant. Earlier, the head of Ukraine's energy utility asked the UN to send peacekeepers to enforce a demilitarized zone around the power plant. Yulian and NPR News, Kyiv.
35: A federal judge says Walgreens helped fuel San Francisco's opioid epidemic by over-dispensing the drugs for years without proper oversight. U.S. District Judge Charles Breyer says the pharmacy chain dispensed hundreds of thousands of pills, eventually contributing to the city's hospitals becoming overwhelmed with patients. San Francisco City Attorney David Hsu says Walgreens failed to identify and report suspicious orders as required by law. Walgreens says it will appeal. Stocks closed higher after new data showed inflation eased in July. and Pierce David Gura has more.
4: All three major indexes gained ground after the Labor Department released the CPI data. In July, the consumer price index was up 8.5 percent from a year earlier, less than Wall Street expected and lower than the year-over-year number in June. It reflects falling gasoline prices. According to AAA, the average price of a gallon of regular gas is down a dollar from its record high in June. But food prices continued to climb, and so did rent. The Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates aggressively to bring down inflation. And before its next meeting in September, Fed policymakers will see one more CPI report and another jobs report. David Gura npr news
35: and wall street higher by the closing bell this is npr
4: this is
0: 90.9 wbur good evening i'm steve brown in boston governor baker has signed into law this afternoon a bill that will legalize sports gambling in massachusetts he also signed the vast majority of a borrowing bill that will funnel 11 billion dollars to transportation projects the bill includes money to advance efforts to expand commuter rail service between western massachusetts and boston He also signed a bill designed to boost mental health care access, and that will require insurance companies cover an annual mental health exam for members. The Massachusetts Department of Veterans of Foreign Wars is applauding Governor Baker's signing of a bill supporting members of the military and their families. One part of the new law makes it easier for military spouses to transfer their professional licenses to Massachusetts from other states. William LeBeau with the VFW of Massachusetts says that's a win for everyone since military families move a lot. The family members should not be penalized. The whole family is serving when we have someone serving in our military. By supporting the person that's serving, by being a part
23: of a family and being supportive, they are serving themselves.
0: The law also allows military families to immediately register and enroll their children in a Massachusetts school district as soon as the active-duty parent gets their relocation orders. The Suffolk County District Attorney's Office has announced a grand jury will investigate an altercation between a black motorist and a white off-duty MBTA police officer. The Boston Globe had reported DA Kevin Hayden planned to drop the case, but he says that's not true. Officer Jacob Green is accused of pulling a gun on a driver during a traffic dispute, then lying about it. Hayden says he has since returned campaign contributions from Green and from Green's attorney. State health officials are evaluating whether to once again change their strategy for vaccinating people against the monkeypox virus. Yesterday, the state said it would only schedule people to receive a first dose of the two-dose vaccine to stretch a limited supply. Hours later, the federal government introduced a different strategy... That calls for two shots, but a smaller dosage. There is a renewed call today for the city of Boston to rename Fennel Hall. Today, demonstrators marched to the popular tourist site from City Hall. They point out that Fennel Hall is named after an 18th century merchant who owned and trafficked enslaved people. Racial justice advocates say the city should not associate itself with someone with that history. Sports, the Red Sox and the Braves go at it again tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, mostly cloudy. Slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight, a low of 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be near
4: 80 degrees.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from
7: NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today, we learned that consumer prices are still climbing at a rapid rate, but not quite as fast as they were earlier this summer. The U.S. Department of Labor reported that inflation has pulled back from a four-decade high last month. A big drop in gasoline prices helped to offset the rising cost of groceries and other goods and services. And we're going to dig a little little deeper now into what this means with NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid, who's in St. Petersburg, Florida today, and economics correspondent Scott Horsley in Washington. Hey to both of you. Howdy.
8: Hi there.
7: Hey. All right, Scott, let's start with you, because as always, you have been digging into the numbers. What's happening to the cost of living?
9: Well, it is still going up, but not as fast as it was. Uh, In June, the annual inflation rate was over 9%, which is something we had not seen in decades. In July, that rate came down just a bit to 8.5%. So still sizzling, but a little cooler than the month before. <laughs> the overall price index actually didn't rise at all between June and July. And that is largely because of that steep drop we've seen in gasoline prices. Uh, prices at the pump have fallen by about a dollar a gallon after hitting a record high back in June. We also saw a pretty big drop last month in travel re- related costs for things like airfare and rental cars and hotel rooms. And economist Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives thinks that's a sign that the era of what she calls revenge travel, when people were willing to pay whatever it cost yeah. to make those trips they'd put off during the pandemic, oh, yeah. is now coming to an end.
24: Now they've got that vacation
10: under their belt. Now it's like, OK, we, now we can resume kind of normal spending behavior where we pick and choose how and where to spend our money based on the best deals available.
9: And that's important because ultimately it's that kind of selective shopping that helps keep prices in check. One reason gas prices have come down is people actually started driving less.
7: Right, but let's be very clear. Inflation has not gone away, so are other prices still going up?
9: They are. Yeah, food prices are up nearly 11% over the last year. That's the biggest year increase since 1979. Hmm. Housing costs are up nearly 6%. Electricity prices are up more than 15%. Uh, and those power prices are tough during these hot summer months when a lot of people's air conditioners are running around the clock.
7: Including mine. Asma, I know that you've been talking with people this week who are really feeling these higher prices. What are they telling you?
8: Well, that's right. And I've been reporting in the Tampa Bay metro area. In part, I came down here because inflate costs have consistently outpaced the average inflation rates in the country. And, you know, Scott spoke about electric prices. I've heard a lot about electricity bills here from people. Food prices are also a huge concern. Uh, I spoke with a young woman who owns a custom bakery in Clearwater, Florida. Her name is Jennifer Jacobs, and she told me her ingredient costs have soared. She's been particularly frustrated with the cost of eggs, and she needs a lot of them to make cakes.
10: I buy a box of 15 dozen eggs. I buy a couple of those boxes each week. It used to be $15 a box in 2020. It's gone up so much that it was $62 last week. So it's risen uh, almost, what, four times the price.
8: And Elsa, I will say, you know, her individual story is unique, but the sentiment is common. Uh, I spent some time outside of a Walmart earlier today. It was easy to find people who were willing to share an earful about rising prices. And on top of that, this is a region where housing prices have been increasing faster than other parts of the country. I spoke with a couple of different young people, young working people who told me that they ultimately decided to move back in with their families, with their parents, because they've been squeezed by rising rent prices and they can no longer afford their current rent
9: now to be sure else we should we should point out wages have been going up as well on average Mm -hmm. wages in july were up 5.2 percent from a year ago Mm -hmm. but prices are climbing faster than that so even though people's paychecks are getting bigger they're not stretching as far as they used to
7: right that may be so but president biden i mean he took a bit of a victory lap about the new data out and here he is at the white house earlier today
3: well the price of some things go up went up last month the price of other things went down the same amount. The result, zero inflation last month, but people were still hurting. But zero inflation last month.
7: I mean Asma, I'm wondering based on what you're hearing from voters, how do you think that zero percent inflation message is going over with them right now?
8: You know, Elsa, I I will say I think this is an example of how the White House has been struggling with the political message around inflation. Um, Some of the voters that I spoke with told me that they have been frustrated because they feel like the government is telling them that things are getting better economically, but they're not feeling that in their individual lives. And so when there is that disconnect, they ultimately will say to me that they don't necessarily trust the White House message around the economy. Uh, I went to a a really busy food pantry here in St. Petersburg, and I met a woman Her name is Jill Mallon. She's on disability. She has bone cancer. And she told me that she's come to rely on the food pantry because she can no longer afford buying her groceries at a grocery store. And she does admit that the economy is affecting the way that she feels about politics.
11: I'm confused. I'm a registered Democrat and I have issues with our former president. But some things I like better under the Republican Party, but I don't like the um, I don't like the untruths that took over with that party, even though I like the economy
29: better.
8: You know, Elsa, the reason I came here to Pinellas County is that it's one of these uh, exceedingly rare so-called boomerang counties, meaning it went for President Obama, then for President Trump, and then subsequently for President Biden. Uh So it's a real mixed political place, and I wanted to hear how voters are interpreting the economy. Um, You know, voters like Jill, I will say, are somewhat unclear about what they think Biden should be doing differently about the economy. But I will say there is a fairly common sentiment that I'm hearing that that voters want the government to be able to do more to offer a a clear picture of an economic solution for them yeah
7: well scott do you have any sense of where inflation is going to go from here
9: well investors are hoping that this report is a sign that the worst of inflation is now behind us of course they've hoped that in the past and it's turned out to be wrong but they are hoping that the federal reserve will feel a little more room now to be gentler in tapping the brakes on inflation Mm -hmm. Uh, that would be welcome news on wall street and the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped more than 535 points today.
7: That is NPR's Scott Horsley in Washington and NPR's Khalid in St. Petersburg, Florida. Thanks to both of you. My yeah.
8: pleasure.
13: U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited Latvia today to reassure the Baltic country that the U.S. will defend its NATO allies. Latvia, which shares a border with Russia, says its military is not big enough to fend off its increasingly aggressive neighbor. And that is why it plans to bring back compulsory military service. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports.
14: In a lush pine and birch forest outside the Latvian capital of Riga, two dozen men dressed in camouflage cheer each other on as, one by one, they sweat through an obstacle course, running with 50-pound sandbags on their shoulders. Andris Zeps cheers them on, stopwatch in hand. He's training these recruits of Latvia's National Guard, and he's tweaking his unit's regiment of military exercises based on how Russian troops are fighting in
15: Ukraine. Since the Ukraine? Uh, We see how Russians are fighting, their tactics. We watch how they fight and we learn from that.
14: Keeping a wary eye on Moscow is almost second nature in Latvia, a country that shares a 180-mile border with Russia and was occupied by both the Russian Empire and more recently the Soviet Union until it gained independence in 1991. Latvian Defense Minister Artis Pabriks says it's clear Russia still has imperial ambitions.
16: And the way how they use the force in Ukraine, the the way how they neglect uh, the population basically uh, makes us to think that we need to strengthen our uh, defense.
14: That's why Pabriks is leading the charge to reinstate compulsory military service for all Latvians. The country had scrapped military conscription 15 years ago after joining NATO and the European Union. But Pabrik says Russia's war in Ukraine means that Latvia needs to be prepared to fend an invader off long enough for NATO forces to fully engage.
16: Which means uh, if somebody invades us, we understand that they might overwhelm us with a might. But uh, we want to be like a small hedgehog which is uh, with many needles. So if you touch us, you will bleed a lot as well.
14: Latvia, which has a population of around 2 million, has just 7,500 active duty soldiers in its professional military backed by 1,500 NATO troops. 20,000 people are in Latvia's military reserves.
15: It's simply not enough when you have not one, but two aggressive neighbors. I mean, Russia and Belarus.
14: Mari Sanzans, director of the Center for Geopolitical Studies in Riga, says compulsory service will strengthen Latvia's military-ready forces to more than 50,000. But doing so has raised concerns about the loyalty of conscripts in the event of a conflict with Russia. A quarter of Latvia's population are ethnic Russians who consider Russian to be their mother tongue, and for some, an identity linked to Russia.
15: There have been, uh, well, uh, different attempts, you know, to foster the integration, but uh, well, it hasn't been enough. The, the conscription might be another way and how to, to foster the integrations.
14: Anzan says young Latvian Russian speakers are less susceptible to Russian propaganda than the older generation and have shown they aren't interested in being part of Putin's Russia. Neither is Oskar Zvanans, who just graduated from high school. The 19-year-old is finishing a set of chin-ups at a local park in Riga. Vanags is exactly the age of those who would have to serve in the military, and he says he's more than willing to do so given the threat.
17: My father once told me that it would take Russia 48 hours to completely take over Latvia.
14: But that estimate is based on Latvia's current military capabilities. Pretty soon, all men the age of Vanogs will learn to become military-ready, and in the words of the country's defense minister, learn the art of being a hedgehog. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Riga.
7: It's been five years since a deadly and violent white nationalist rally rocked Charlottesville, Virginia. The city has removed the Confederate monument that drew white supremacists, and it has approved a plan to melt down the bronze statue and forge it into a more inclusive piece of public art.
1: Taking something that was harmful and then transforming it into something that is useful and of the cultural desire of the place.
7: Hear more tomorrow on All Things Considered. And you are listening now to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. 70 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, a year after Kabul fell to the Taliban, we look back at how those hectic days unfolded at the city's airport. That's ahead here on WBUR. In business news, a Cambridge-based biotech is inked a deal for a big partnership in its efforts to treat inflammatory bowel diseases like colitis and Crohn's disease. Genta Bio will team up with Bristol-Myers Squibb in a deal worth up to $1.9 million for the Cambridge startup. GentaBio works to develop cell therapies. On Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. The Dow finished up more than 1.5%, 535 points at 33,309. NASDAQ rose almost 3%, 361 points at 12,855, and the S&P 500 up 2%, or 88 points, to close at 4210. Marketplace is coming up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news here on WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Volante Farms in Needham offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See Sunday supper menus and more at VolanteFarms.com. Coming
0: to City Space on Tuesday, August 16th, a primary debate with the Democratic candidates for Massachusetts lieutenant governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events.
19: When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio, even in California, or in Michigan, or in Austin.
6: Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter.
19: WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us.
6: To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. This
7: is
21: All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. At this time a year ago, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella was in Kuwait. He is a Marine, the commanding officer for a battalion landing team, a kind of on-call crisis response force for the region. And at this time a year ago, the crisis that was looking more and more imminent was the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan.
22: We had been preparing for about a month at this point. In Kuwait, we'd been talking about it, analyzing it, every single day, rehearsing what we thought might happen and what we were gonna do in training.
21: Then, as Richard Della puts it, the bell rang. Orders came, he and his battalion got on a military transport plane, flew to Kabul and got to work.
22: What we really needed to figure out was if we were directed to start evacuating people, what gates we were gonna choose, what entry points onto the base, uh, in, in really kind of setting up the logistics that would make the most sense for the flow of a large amount of people.
21: That was August 13th, 2021. Two days later, Kabul fell. Richardella was one of the officers in charge of security for Kabul Airport. We're going to spend these next few minutes hearing what that was like. Richardella told me about the precise moment when it became very clear things were not going to plan.
22: I'll never forget this moment for as long as I live. And that was the night of the 15th. During the day uh, at different gates, more and more people started coming up. Uh, We were not formally ready for evacuation operations. I was in command of 1,000 Marines and all 1,000 were supposed to be there to set conditions to establish security and be prepared. I only had 150 at that point. And uh, things started to become pretty tough. People were coming to the gate, uh, they were panicked, um, and we started to receive plenty of sniper fire at uh, at some of these gates. People uh, were getting injured. We dealt with that uh, as we're trained to do.
21: What uh, does dealing with that mean? Does that mean firing back? Does that mean getting people to safety? What does it mean?
22: Yes, it, it means firing back and providing enough safety to uh, protect the people that were there to help and, uh, and support the allies that we were uh, providing security with. That evening, I walk into uh, the Joint Operations Center and right away, I see people talking about how the ambassador or the chief of mission has closed down the mission there.
21: At the embassy, yeah. Yes,
22: yes, ma'am. That the government has fallen, the president has left. I was unaware as I was out on the line the entire day. And at that moment, I look up at the myriad of screens and one camera was picking up on the southern portion of the base. What we didn't know is that all the Afghan security forces left. So there was a huge hole in security for the southern portion of the base where the civilian terminal was. And all you saw, were thousands of people running through the gates and onto the base. Our job was going to be to keep the airfield open. If there were people on that airfield, we would have to close and we would not have support, nor would we have an exit. So in that moment, I looked at a few uh, of my people and we just locked and loaded, put our kits on and just ran out. Of course, it was at night, it was pitch black and we had no idea what we were going to face. And as we ran onto that airfield, there they were, about three to 5,000 panicked civilians right there on our doorstep, surrounding the one uh, to two uh, C-17s that were actually there. What they, they saw as their, their beacon of freedom.
21: So let me just pause you for a second. You're describing a situation. You have 150 people under your command. You should have more, uh, but you have to keep the airport open so they can arrive. And with those hundred and fifty people, you're trying to figure out what do we do with these thousands of people who are frantically pouring into the airport? And we don't know if who these people are, <laughs> uh, Afghans, Americans, whoever good guys, bad guys, any of it. We are just trying to hold hold a line.
22: That was it, ma'am. Uh, we, you know, there's no textbook on that right there. So we just figured it out as we went. Uh, and so what we did was just get shoulder to shoulder. I would say we made up about 300 people total and just start pushing the people back to the other side of the airstrip, corral them there, then start spreading our message that we will get them out. That turned into two and a half days of a constant bitter struggle back and forth. As 5,000 grew to 10,000, panic increased. Taliban continued to shoot uh, at us um, and and, and start hurting people.
21: From the outside, for those of us trying to follow what's going on, this is... When we're seeing the pictures starting to stream in of people who are desperate, running after planes, holding on to planes as they're trying to take off. They're that desperate. What are the orders you're giving? You're in charge.
22: Hold the line. Keep the airfield open. Protect these people. Those are the orders I'm giving. The people saw what we were doing. They saw that we were trying to stop the guys that were firing at us. Uh, that were firing through them, the crowd that is. Uh, people had nowhere else to go. And uh, just it just created riots and absolute panic and chaos.
21: I want to bring in um, one other voice and let you respond to it, just to enlarge on quite how quickly the situation was changing. Um, last week I interviewed General Frank McKenzie, the then commander of CENTCOM. And asked him about August 15th and the day that Kabul fell. He told me on that day he had flown to Doha, which is where the Taliban leadership was. He had warned them not to interfere with the U.S. withdrawal.
9: When I was going out to uh, Doha, the plan was to try to get the Taliban to stop at a perimeter maybe 15 or 20 kilometers outside the city a ring around it. We, we wanted them to not come any closer until we pulled our forces out. Well, by the time I got there, they were already in downtown Kabul. So that plan was no longer operative.
21: So a sense there of how quickly things were changing. Colonel Richard Della, from where you sat, did it feel like things flipped suddenly over those days from you know, the Taliban is the enemy, we're fighting them to hang on, we're going to have to coordinate with the Taliban if we're going to secure this airport and try to get whoever we can get out, out
22: yeah, that, that really came as a shock to me. You know, I, I questioned that at initially when I received that guy. I said, You know, we've had multiple engagements and killed a bunch of them at this point, and they're still shooting at us. And I was told yes, uh, but we're partnering with them now. They're kind of going to do security from outside the base, and we're going to do uh, the inner security portion of the base. Uh, you know, the people were still very scared of the Taliban, and uh, it certainly didn't make our jobs very easy once we formally opened for processing operations to begin the evacuation at the various gates that we had, the, the press of humanity of 5,000 plus people pushing against a single gate. And they see us take one, two, three people in and they, they just wanna bum rush, claw, punch, kick uh, any way they can to try and get onto the base.
21: Lieutenant Colonel Chris Richardella, one of the officers in charge of security at Kabul Airport when that city fell to the Taliban. Tomorrow on the program, we continue our conversation with Richardella describing what happened in the hours and days that followed as families desperate to evacuate massed at the gates that his troops were trying to protect.
22: This is what you were dealing with. Was this just absolute crisis of humanity and looking in these people's eyes and them looking at you as their only way out because they truly believed they were going to die.
7: This is NPR News. And
0: this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers or thunderstorms overnight. The lows will be around 63 degrees. Showers early tomorrow morning, making way for partly sunny skies. The highs will be around 80, mostly sunny and 80 on Friday. Saturday should be sunny during the day. The high is around 78 degrees. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari. Sales tax-free event this week with new antique hand-knotted rugs. Boston, Salem, and Framingham. Landryandarcari.com, And Boston University's Metropolitan College. Offering part-time and evening accelerated degree completion. Earn an affordable bachelor's in computer science or management studies in just two years. Learn more at bu.edu met.